Hi, I'm Shane Robertson, and welcome to the Maysville Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Here at Maysville, we want to practice loving God, loving others, and serving the world. I trust this sermon will be an encouragement to you as it challenges your heart and strengthens your walk of faith. Now, grab your Bibles as we get ready to hear from the Word of God. I hope you have your Bibles this morning. Let me encourage you to find 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter number 1. Uh, with the Lord's, uh, by the Lord's will, we'll be back in the book of Acts next week. But this morning, I want us to look at 1 Timothy chapter number 1. I want to call your attention to verse number 15 as a springboard verse as I preach a message I've entitled, Ministry and the Man of God. Ministry and the man of God. Look at what the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter number 1, verse number 15. Paul, writing to Timothy, says this. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. Paul, in writing to Timothy, is encouraging him to stay strong in the faith. If there was ever a time, Tom, where we need to stay strong in the faith, it is today. We have got to stay strong in our faith in Jesus Christ. We're living in a world that's changing right before our very eyes. And as it changes before our very eyes, the question holds, what are we to do as born-again children of God? We know that when Paul wrote to Timothy, Paul was writing to him as Timothy was experiencing a very difficult thing within the church. He was a pastor there at Ephesus, and as Paul had left him at Ephesus, there were some things that were going on at Ephesus that Paul had seen prior to his departure and leaving Timothy there. He saw that there were what's called Gnostics that were invading the church. And these Gnostics, which by the way, the term had not been identified yet. They were just simply false teachers that were teaching a false doctrine. They were teaching a doctrine that was contrary to what Jesus was teaching. Remember, Jesus' teaching essentially was this. The law of Moses, the law that God gave Moses, is a mirror and when we look into that mirror, we see our sinful, wretched selves. We cannot please God by looking in that mirror. So God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, who was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, went to Calvary and took our sins and placed them upon Himself. Took the sins and placed them upon Himself. That whoever comes to Jesus Christ as the Messiah, will have their sins forgiven. So that when they look into the mirror of the law, they say, I cannot keep it, but Christ has justified me. Christ has redeemed me. Christ has made me whole. Christ has cleaned me up from the inside, and it is affecting who I am on the outside. And so Paul is instructing Timothy in these in these lines that you have got to do two primary things. There are two things you've got to do in the culture of false teachers in order for the gospel to continue to grow 
and the church continue to mature in Jesus Christ. We here at Maysville Baptist Church are not done yet. God has still, he still has a plan for us. And the plan that God has for us includes you. It includes each one of us in participating in God's call upon our lives. Today we celebrate, we are celebrating the retirement 37 years of ministry with Pastor David. 37 years of full-time service. We've included that full-time Christian service. We've included that because we want to make sure that you understand today the distinction that we have today is that there is a chapter closing on full-time ministry, but a new chapter is being opened on continued service to the Lord. If I were to title, David, if I were to title this new chapter in your life, it would be Finishing Strong. I'm going to finish strong. And Paul, he is well advanced in age here. Uh, the, the First Timothy, uh, Second Timothy, and Titus are his last letters that he's going to write. He's actually going to write them in this order. He's going to write First Timothy, then he's going to write Titus, and then he's going to write Second Timothy, and he's done. He is going to finish strong. But before he finishes strong, he writes this letter to Timothy, this first letter to Timothy, and says, Timothy, listen, there are two things that I want you to do. And these are the two things that not only that Timothy needs to do, but it's two things that we all need to do. And that's what I want to share with you today. In a culture that is a wreck, there are two things you and I can do to make a difference for the kingdom of God. Number one, the first one is teach sound doctrine. Teach sound doctrine. When you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, the overarching theme of this section of Scripture is a challenge from Paul to Timothy to teach sound doctrine. I want you to notice verse number uh, 1, 2, 3, and 4 if I could. The Bible says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the commandment of God, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ, our hope, to Timothy, a true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, our Father, and Jesus Christ, our Lord. I urge you, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus. So here we see the location of Timothy. He's at Ephesus. He's the pastor of the church in Ephesus. That you may charge some that they teach no other doctrine nor give heed to, to fables or endless genealogies which minister questions rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now let me stop right there and let me say a couple of things parenthetically if I could. Number one, the first thing I want you to notice here in regards to this teaching of sound doctrine, we see Paul is charging Timothy to, to tell these false teachers within the church to stop. As a matter of fact, he uses the term to, to charge them to teach no other doctrine. Uh, this is all one word in the Greek. And this one word in the Greek means to, to, to let them know of the devastating truth that they are proclaiming and to demand to stop it. So what Paul is doing to Timothy here is saying, Timothy... 
in regards to teaching sound doctrine, you've got to demand that it stop. Because anything opposite of sound doctrine is strange doctrine. And so these individuals were proclaiming this strange doctrine. Now, now remember... Before Paul's arrest, he had passed near Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem. And he was, uh, and had written in Acts chapter 20, verse number 28, he said this about Ephesus. He says, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and shepherds of the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Paul said, I see it coming just as plain as the nose on my face. He says, they're going to come, these wolves that are so hungry, they're going to enter into the church today and they're going to do everything in their power to distract you from true Christianity and want to put your eyes on something else. Paul Phil mentioned that here just a few moments ago when he said, look, we're going to sing this song, but if you Google it or if you look it up on YouTube and you see it, there's going to be all these other songs that are in relationship to this song. What, what, what Phil's saying here is the song we're singing today has deep, deep spiritual truth, but others have, hit, have hijacked that and said, oh, look over here, look over here. And when you look over here, they drag you away from the truth of that song and say, no, go this route. And Paul is saying in the text, don't do it. Don't do it. Stay true to sound doctrine. We're living in a day today where there's all kinds of strange doctrines that are going on today. And Paul, in writing to Timothy, he says, Listen, Timothy, you have got to be sure and demand that sound doctrine take place. Why? He says, Because when you follow after strange doctrine, it's going to produce some things. And we see that here in the text. We see beginning in verse number 4, Paul is going to say that there's this product that comes out of strange doctrine. L let me show you what I mean by the product of strange doctrine. Number one, the first one is that it produces fables. It produces fables. When you go after strange doctrine that leaves the Word of God and just kind of makes you feel good, it'll produce fables. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 4 again. The Bible says, he, he says, Listen, Timothy, I charge you to demand strong doctrine, sure doctrine. Tell them to teach no other doctrine. Nor give heed to, here it is if you have your pens, fables. The product of strange doctrine are fables. Now we have to ask ourselves the question, what is that? Fables are myths. In other words, there's certain men that have turned their attention to fanciful mythology. We have these in Christianity today. They want to call your attention away from the Word of God and they want, listen to me, they want your spirituality to be focused on the mystic aspects of this world. Jesus wants your attention on the Word of God, not on mysticism. 
And so this mythology that he's talking about here is there were these Jews that had these legends and these fables that were not rooted in history at all, but rather they were stories intended to distract you from the actual historical accounts of God's dealing with his people. We see this today even in Islam where the focus has come off of uh, Isaac and put on Ishmael. And so he, here is what the Scripture is calling. There's these, these, these fables, this mysticism, if you would, that would draw our attention off of the true, uh, the true order, the true nature of the Word of God. He says you've got to demand that they stop because when you put your focus on fables, you take your attention away from the Father. Number two, he says not only does it produce fables, but it also produces endless genealogies. Did you see it there in the text? Endless genealogies. In other words, here in verse number four, they were speculating uh, on allegorical interpretations of family trees. Now, please hear me out, because I know I just used a big word, and somebody said, well, what did he just say? I used the term allegorical interpretation. When you approach the Word of God... Even in this day and age, today and in the first century church, when you approach the Word of God, you had to choose what form of interpretation you were going to use. There are only two. There are only two. Now, there's some synonyms for them, so there's a lot of different words for these two interpretations, but there are only two interpretations when it comes to the Word of God. There is a form called literal interpretation, or for those of you... Uh, uh, educate, educated eggheads out there like myself. I, I like this. It's called the historical grammatical form of interpretation. Uh, for those of us that just need it simple, like I need it like that too, it's the literal form of interpretation. Now, when you look and you take the literal form of interpretation when you read the Word of God, it does not mean when you read the text that Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. It doesn't mean that Jesus is a literal vine. Okay? When you use the literal form of interpretation, you apply proper grammatical skills to the text. That is to say, all of those things you learned in English... You have to apply them. So when you see the word like or as, you immediately think, well, in Scripture, with a literal form of interpretation, this is a simile. Uses the term like or as. Now, look, I know this is not an, it's not an English lesson, but I'm just telling you, when you approach the Word of God, whether you know it or not, you're either going to interpret it from a literal form or you're going to interpret it from a second form called the allegorical form of interpretation. The allegorical form of interpretation is also called spiritualizing the text. It simply means that you take a text and you remove it out of its context. And when you remove it out of its context, that text becomes what's called a pretext. And you can make it say whatever you want to make it say. That is not what God intended for the Word of God. The Word of God says what the Word of God says. It's our responsibility as born-again children of God to take the Word of God and to interpret it correctly with the literal form of interpretation, applying the proper grammatical skills to the text and say it meant what it said in the day it was written and it means for me a certain application. So what I'm telling you is this. You better, you better make sure your little analytical antennas go up if some preacher says what this verse means to me is... 
or, or a Christian that's teaching. Just a, a, said, well, let me tell you what this verse means to me. And so, man, I've been guilty of that. Then I'm asking you to please lay aside the allegorical form of interpretation and pick up the literal form of interpretation and start applying the proper grammatical elements to it and then make your application. It's not, listen, it don't matter what you think that verse means to you. What matters is what the verse means when he written it, when he wrote it, and how that applies to my life. You see, when the Word of God was written during this season and period, Paul was instructing Timothy in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. And he said, listen, you've got to combat strange doctrine. The application for us today is that we, as a New Testament church, just like, like uh, Timothy was pastoring a New Testament church, our responsibility is to prevent strange doctrine. And in order to prevent strange doctrine, then we have got to do, as the Scripture says, not accept fables. We cannot accept Islam as a way to get to Jesus. Number two, we cannot accept endless genealogies. The endless genealogies that we're referring to here is that because your mom or dad was a, uh, was a God-fearer or they were a Judaizer, then you're okay. In essence, what that means today is if your mom and dad was a Christian, then you're going to go to heaven when you die. That is false doctrine. That's strange doctrine. You will not get to heaven on your parents' faith. So he says you've got to get rid of this endless genealogies. Number three, there's a third one there. He says it produces the wrong questions. Verse number four. He says, strange doctrine produces wrong questions. Notice verse 4, he says this, which calls or which minister questions rather than godly edification, which is in faith. The New King James says, causes disputes. That's what questions do. The wrong questions cause individuals to dispute each other inside the church. You ever seen church splits? What, what happened? They're asking the wrong questions. And so here in this church at Ephesus, the wrong questions were being asked. And the wrong questions that were being asked were characterized in such a way that they were trying to manipulate the congregation to say, is that really true? When God had very plainly said it. They use these descriptive words, if you would, here in this day, in this age in a form of speculation to cause their attention to draw off of the Word of God and try to draw on tradition. We are not saved based on tradition. We're saved upon the Word of God and what God says. He says, you've got to get rid of the wrong questions. Say, so well, how does that apply to us today, preacher? Probably the best example that I've seen concerning the wrong questions would be what happened many years ago when there was the production of Dan Brown's uh, book, The Da Vinci Code. How many of you remember that, The Da Vinci Code? All right. Th this brought about the wrong questions. That book was portrayed, by the way, it was a fictional book. It was produced as fiction. And it still is a fictional book. A fictional book takes some, forms, uh, some form of truth that have very large gaps, and they fill in the gaps however they want to fill it in. That's what makes it the fiction. Dan Brown, on this particular occasion, when he wrote the Da Vinci Code, filled in those gaps by saying that Jesus Christ was married and had children. He filled that in. 
by his own will. It produced questions among our culture. And because of that book, many in, or that book and that movie, many chose, instead of believing what the truth of God's Word says, many chose rather to go after Dan Brown's book and say, I believe that. Casting doubt on the authority of the Word of God. But we see today the Word of God is even more supreme today than Dan Brown's book. Why? Because history has shown us that they were asking the wrong questions. The Bible said it to begin with. Number four. Here's the fourth one. It also produces vain janglings. You see what it says in verse number 6? The Bible talks about it here in verse number 6. He says, uh, from which some having strayed turned aside to vain janglings. Uh, the New King James uses the term uh, idle talk. Idle talk. Vain janglings. What's he talking about here? He's saying that they turned aside, that is to miss the mark. He said they missed the mark by talking about these these empty words, these empty conversations that they were having. What he's saying to, to us today is that strange doctrine will produce this empty talk, this vain jangling, this meaningless jargon. What was the meaningless jargon that we're talking about here in this particular passage of Scripture? Well, the Bible tells us in Titus chapter 1, verse 10, they were mostly coming from the circumcision. What he's referring to is that they were these Judaizers that did not receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. And they were coming in and they were saying, no, what Jesus is saying is not true. If you really want to go to heaven when you die, then you've got to be circumcised. The only problem with that, that line of theology and that line of flow of thought was only men then can go to heaven. How you ladies like that? Jesus said, you got circumcision all wrong. It's not the circumcision of the body. It's the circumcision of the heart. And the circumcision of the heart is for everyone. And so he says simply this, that in regards to this issue of the product of strange doctrine, it will produce these things in the church if you don't stop it. And then there's a second thing he says in regards to this issue. He not only talks about, uh, if you would, the product of strange doctrine, but then he also talks about the purpose of sound doctrine. We see in this text the purpose of sound doctrine, and he does so in such a way that he identifies the purpose of sound doctrine is fivefold. Let me give it to you very quickly. Number one, the first one is that it brings godly edifying, which is found in faith. Look at verse number four again. He goes on to say in the text, in the latter part, he says, rather than godly edification, which is in faith. Sound doctrine produces godly edification, which is anchored in faith. Uh, Paul put it this way to the Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And so in regards to this, he just simply says that if you want to preach sound doctrine or when you preach sound doctrine, there's going to be this edification that takes place inside the congregation. And this edification that's going to take place will be grounded, rooted, anchored in faith. So that the people that identify with this testify by saying, Amen. They get excited because it's truth without any mixture of error. 
and the doctrinal truth and it captivates us in such a way that we either, uh, some people can't help it like David. He just can't help it. It just comes out. Amen. Others shake their head. Others raise their hand, point their finger. Some, right on, preach it. Go ahead. Give him some space. Give him some room. Look out. Here he comes. Amen. You got that right, preacher. Why? Because it's founded and grounded and anchored in faith and it causes this godly edification. Number two, he says, here's the second, here's the second uh, purpose of sound doctrine. Charity. Look at verse 5. That's right. Love. Verse 5. He says, now the purpose of the commandment is love. Again, he's pointing, he's making reference to the commandment, the law of Moses, to say, to say that by teaching the sound doctrine of the commandment of Moses that we cannot save ourselves by keeping the law, it will produce love. Why? Because it reflects upon what God did in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He said sound doctrine will produce love, agape type love. Because you think about the gift of God to you and I. Number three, he says, here's a third thing it will also uh, produce. It will also, or the purpose, the third purpose of sound doctrine is a pure heart. Verse number five, again, notice what the scripture says. It's love from a pure heart. Having a pure heart can only be satisfied by trusting Jesus Christ as personal Savior and Lord. It pertains to one being clean, being washed. And that washing is evident by the lifestyle one lives. Any of us that have kids can fill in your own illustration there. A kid smells better after a bath. Can I get a witness right there? As born-again children of God, we smell better. After we're washed in the blood of the Lamb. Number four. Here's the fourth product or purpose, if you would. The fourth purpose of sound doctrine. A good conscience. Verse five. Did you see it there? Look at the Bible again. I'm, I'm calling your attention to the scriptures. He says, not only is it love from a pure heart, from that, that word from there, um, it, we find it in scripture there, a good conscience. A good conscience is in comparison to what would be a seared conscience that the Bible speaks about. A seared conscience is someone that has rejected the call of God on their life, rejected the draw of the Holy Spirit on their life, rejected, 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 where their heart is now callous. Now, can God break through a hard heart? Yes, he can. But here again, and we'll see this next week, Lord willing, in the text, when we look at the, at the book of Acts again, you see there's a responsibility of man, but you also see the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is that he's provided a way. He knows who's going to be saved. He knows who's not going to be saved. I don't know who's going to be saved or who's not going to be saved. It's my responsibility to cast seed. I preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But in preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, it's your responsibility either to receive Christ or to reject him or neglect him. So we see the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God. Does God know who's going to do what? Yes. Is God's love, I love you, I hate you, I love you, I hate you, I love you, I hate you, no, that's not God's love or God's way. God's way is I love the whole world. So God doesn't, what that means is God doesn't send anybody to hell. You'll send yourself to hell by rejecting Jesus as Savior. But those that come to Christ have a pure heart. 
and a good conscience. Meaning that when the Holy Spirit speaks to us, we see this, the, the conscience as a goad. As the conscience goads us, we receive uh, instructions from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Good illustration of this is 1 John 1, 9. If you'll confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. This verse is written to born-again children of God, to believers. We use it in evangelism for a lost person who doesn't know God. And by application, the truth is accurate. But contextually, not making that verse a pretext and making it say whatever we want it to say, by application, it is true. By context, it is also true that as a born-again child of God, as a saved um, Christian, you are going to sin. You're not perfect. Let's say something. Hit their spouse. I told you. 1 John 1, 9, that is the verse we have, a good conscience. And then number five, he gives us a fourth purpose of sound doctrine, unfrayed faith. Now look at what he says in verse number five. He says, having strayed and turned aside from vain, James, excuse me, uh, go back up to verse five, I, I hit verse six. He says there in the latter part of verse number five, from a good conscience and from sincere faith, unfrayed faith. I got these little tassels on my Bible. Many of you have them too. Every now and then you get one that's got this little screen, this little string right here. If you pull that little string too hard, that thing will unravel and you'll have a big mess all in your Bible. He's referring to that same principle in individuals' faith. He tells us here that the purpose of sound doctrine is to take a little, like taking a little bit of a, fabric glue or super glue and putting it on the end of that so that it doesn't unravel. Does that make sense? And so he says sound doctrine does the same thing for you. If you don't have sound doctrine in your life, then your faith's going to unravel. Why? Because you're putting your faith in how you feel instead of what the truth is. Could I just go on record as saying this as a, as a pastor? There are some days I don't feel saved. I don't feel saved. Yesterday would be a good illustration of it. I got up yesterday morning and my wife wasn't feeling good, hadn't felt good all day or all night. Ended up going to the doctor on Saturday morning. And then uh, went to the doctor and they wouldn't let me in. Bless God, didn't that aggravate you? So I sat in the car. And then she come out and I said, well... What do you think? She told me what the doctor said and then said, the doctor wants me to go to the hospital. Wants to do some more tests. Well, that's one of them days. You go over there and sit there. And, they, and I, I, I got my exercise in. If I wanted 10,000 steps, I got them walking back and forth to the car. You can come in. No, you can't come in. No, you can come in. No, you can't come in. We'll call you when you can come in. Back and forth and back and forth. Frustration. It's one of those mornings where pastor had to exercise. First John, one night. Well, why'd you exercise that verse? Because even though I didn't feel like I was saved, I knew I was because of the promise of God. Paul felt the same way. He says, man, listen, my faith has not been framed. It has not fallen apart. My faith has been sincere. 
And in sincere, he's saying, I haven't been play-acting. I've been consistent in the what I'm having. And it moved him so much that in verse number 11, he talks about how he's been entrusted with this glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to his trust. He said, God didn't have to save me, but he did. He saved me. And because he saved me, he's entrusted the gospel into me. And as the gospel's been entrusted to me, I want to make sure I'm preaching sound doctrine. I'm rejecting strange doctrine. And because of that, he just goes off and in, in, in verses 11 and following, verse 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, he just starts giving his testimony how good God's been to him. And he ends in verse number 17 by professing that God is the king, he is eternal, he is immortal, he is invisible, he is wise, he is honorable, he's worthy of glory forever and ever. Amen. This is why we teach sound doctrine. Number two, not only did Paul encourage Timothy to teach sound doctrine, he told him secondly, he said, the second thing I really need you to do, Timothy, in this very difficult culture you're in, is I need you to defend the faith. Defend the faith. Verses 18, 19, and 20 concentrate, if you would, on defending the faith. Look at what the Bible says in verse number 18. He says, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Having faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith, having suffered shipwreck. Of whom Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they should learn not to blaspheme. Now I want you to notice, very, very, it's very important here in the text. This text does not teach you can lose your salvation. You see, the problem here is these individuals were never truly saved. They bought into a strange doctrine to begin with. And this is the whole purpose of his writing here. I ought to be honest with you, we got organizations today that will defend the bald eagle, the spotted hoot owl, the wetland slug, and every teenage daughter to have an abortion without her parents even telling them. I'll be honest with you today. We need some ministers today with some convictions that are as tough as leather and some language that's strong as Old Spice. And we need to defend the faith. We got enough prints and preachers out there in skinny jeans sipping lattes and watching lost people go to hell while they preach 12 ways to have a happy life. We need some men of God that'll say, this is what the Bible says and this is what the Bible means. And stick to the Word of God and watch what God's going to do. Look at the text again. He tells them in the text, he says to Timothy, I charge thee. This word charge is an urgent command. It's like, a, it's like an order coming down from a superior officer. He says, listen, Timothy, you cannot hedge on this. You've got to be faithful. You've got to be true. And the only way you're going to make a difference in your culture is you have got to wage a good warfare. And the only way to do that is twofold. Watch this. Number one, he tells him, verse number 19 he says hold on to your faith hold on to your faith don't let go of your faith look again in verse number 19 he says having faith that is you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord by faith now you have faith continue having that faith don't 
lose faith. Don't be discouraged. Reject the way you feel. Hold to what Scripture says. If you're born again, you'll have a bad day. But God's still the God of the bad day. He says, hold on to your faith. I want you to know, this is quite interesting. It is reflected in the New King James very, very appropriately. Let me show it to you if you could. Notice what the Scripture says in verse 19. Having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, has suffered shipwreck. He puts the definite article the the second time. And it's in the Greek, the definite article is definitely there. So in regards to this, the word faith, which is used twice here, once with the definite article and the other without the definite article, when you add the word thee to faith, it's talking about the things that we believe in. It's talking about the correct sound doctrine. But the first time, it is without the word thee and refers to our trust in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So when we're facing these spiritual battles, we need to fight them in faith from the place of trusting God for our help. We put our faith in Jesus Christ. So he says, you've got to hold on to it, man. Hold on to the faith. Even in those hard days, even the difficult days. And then number two, he says this. And he repeats it. He says the second time he said it. And having a good conscience. That's number two. Having a good conscience conscience. Uh, I've already talked about a seared conscience and a, and a good conscience. That good conscience knows that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior and, and he uses the conscience to goad us when to do right. And when we do wrong, he goads us to tell us that we've done wrong. Throughout the course of this passage of Scripture, Paul has made it very, very clear. He says, look, if you're going to make an impact on your culture, there are two things you've got to do. You've got to teach sound doctrine, and you've got to defend the faith, and you've got to be consistent on this day after day, month after month, year after year. I want to submit to you today, church, that we have an individual in our congregation that has done exactly what Paul told Timothy to do. Day after day, month after month, year after year. His name is Pastor David Sharpton. For the past 37 years, he's taken this passage of Scripture and has never taken it out of context, but made application to his own life to teach sound doctrine in such a way that it has produced strong doctrine that has been edifying to the church in faith. It has been done with a demonstration of love, a pure heart, a good conscience, and unfeigned faith. He's defended the faith by holding on to his faith. And by having a good conscience for the last 37 years, has preached and teached just like a nobody trying to tell everybody about Jesus Christ. I want to call your attention to the screens this morning as we turn our attention to a present-day illustration of what Timothy was supposed to do. And I want you to stay to the end. When the song's over, stay to the end, and we'll recognize and praise the Lord for 37 years of ministry.
But look at the screens at this time. Why you ever chose me has always been a mystery. All my life I've been told I belong at the end of the line. Will all the other not quite? Just to rest upon his 
his promise just to know the saith the Lord Jesus Jesus how I trust him how I proved you more and more Jesus Jesus precious Jesus oh for David, I wish I could be in the church today in person to help honor you on this very special day. Uh, but because of prior commitment to, to preach at Concord Baptist uh, in Claremont, Georgia, I could not personally be there, so I wanted to send this video. Uh, Ethel and I love you and Donna very much and, and uh, appreciate and value your friendship more than you'll ever know. I have so many great memories of ministry together with you. I um, wish I were there to, to share some of them personally. Uh, memories like someone putting a snake, a stuffed rattlesnake under the front row uh, of the church during prayer time and asking you to hand them your Bible. I can't believe anybody would do that to you. But I do know that your vertical leap uh, would uh, make any NBA basketball team in America. Uh, I've never seen anyone jump so high and then uh, straight across uh, the pew to another pew as you did on that day. We have a lot of fun memories like that, uh, a lot of fun times together. But the things that mean the most to me are one, your commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. You and Donna serve him so faithfully. And you give of yourself uh, tirelessly and unselfishly uh, to, to people. Um, you, you minister uh, with a genuine uh, love and care for people. And that means so much. Your preaching is, is spot on. It's, it's, it's always... Uh, very tied to to scripture and and uh, and very applicable uh, to one's daily life. Um, God has used your messages in so many ways and will continue to do so. But the thing that stands out the most is your desire to see souls saved. There are going to be a lot of people in heaven because of your ministry, because of your fearless witness for Christ. I'm sitting here now just thinking back over scores of people I know that are following Jesus today because David Sharpton loved them enough to tell them how Jesus could change their lives. 
You and Donna have always rejoiced when people were saved. You've always uh, uplifted the church in prayer, praying that the church would be a soul-winning church. God has put an incredible team together there at Maysville with Shane and you and the other staff. And I know that although you're uh, going part-time, that you'll still give 110% of yourself. That's the only way you know how to do ministry. God is being honored today as you're being honored. He's being honored in so many ways. I know that your desire is that his name be elevated. And I can think of nothing better than on your day of honor than for somebody to trust Jesus as their Savior. That, I know, would make your day. So if there's anyone that's, that's in the service and you're, you're, you're watching this video, I want you to know God loves you. Jesus died for you, and you can have eternal life. David, that's the message that, that you have so clearly and powerfully presented to people everywhere not only in the context of a church service or a Bible study, but on the streets and in restaurants and in homes. Brother, enjoy this day. You and Donna deserve it. I know that she has a long list of things for you to do at home. Donna, just pour it on. But also, I know that you guys are going to spend some quality time together. And you're going to spend some time with those children and those grandchildren. And you're going to create some wonderful memories in the days ahead. Again, I just want you to know, Ethel and I love you. We value your friendship. And we're very proud of you. We're very proud of your ministry, of you as a person and of your desire to honor God in every way. May God bless you on this great day. Have fun, but watch out. Don't reach under that pew where you're sitting. You never know what might be there. <laughs> Amen. I fought so hard. We had some staff members that said, please, please let us put a rubber snake under his seat. <laughs> no, we didn't do that. And I'll tell you the reason why. It's because David's heart's desire, just like Larry said, is that the attention be upon Jesus. And that's why you didn't hear a message today just all about David. You heard a message about God. And I know his heart, and that's what he's his desire. But he, here's one thing I also know in talking about sound doctrine. If you're here today, and if you don't know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord, there's a condemnation that you feel inside. You don't know Christ. If you died today, you'd go to hell. Solomon put it this way. God put eternity in our hearts. And because God put eternity in our hearts, like that University of Georgia professor that proclaimed to be an atheist for all those years and then finally came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. He came to a point in his life to realize that what Solomon said was true. There's eternity in his heart. When I die, I'm going somewhere. And upon his studies, his ultimate conclusion was that he was going to hell because he didn't know Christ as Savior. 
Search your heart, dear friend. Do you know Christ as your Savior? If not, your destination after death is surely hell. You'll be the one sending yourself there, not God. But I got good news. The good news is you don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven by trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and Lord. I wonder, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here and maybe you would like to make a decision for Christ. Maybe you would like to say, you know what, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior. From your heart to God's, would you say something like this to the Lord today? Would you say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that you are the Savior. Today I repent of my sin and I trust you as my Savior. Thank you for saving me. I will live for you in Jesus' name. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, maybe you're here today and maybe you testified to that by praying and asking Jesus to save you. I wonder if you're here and that was your desire and you did that today to the best of your ability, would you just slip your hand up? I'm not going to point you out. I just want to thank God for the decision you made. Just slip it up and put it right back down today. Just up and then down. Thank you so very much. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for our congregation. And I want to thank you for Pastor David. And I want to thank you today that we pause after the 11 o'clock service to honor him and to love on him as he closes the chapter of full-time service and opens the chapter of finishing strong in retirement service. I pray that you get all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to ask David and Donna to please come up here on the stage with me. We do have a presentation for them. Uh, as this chapter closes and opens a chapter of finishing strong, uh, we uh, got a little gift for them. We got a, uh, uh, a little plaque. Mark's going to try to do it without dropping it. It's a talented brother in Christ right here. Talented. Good. I wanted to show you this, and I wanted to just bring a spotlight to it if I could, if I don't throw it on the floor. Uh, and it is a plaque that just says, 37 years of full-time ministry service. That's 13,505 sunrises and sunsets, early mornings, studying, reading, meditating on the powerful, infallible Word of God, countless Sunday school lessons taught, intercessory prayer for family and others, hundreds of sermons preached, and the gospel invitation given. Faithful servant to the Lord and a friend to many. Untold numbers coming to know, uh, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Ministry continues April 2021 to David Sharpton. Would you please stand as we honor David and Donna Sharpton. Thanks for listening. As a pastor, my primary concern is your eternity. The Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, that you can know where you will spend eternity. I would love to connect with you and talk more about your walk of faith. You can email and find more information about the ministry of Maysville Baptist Church on our website. Just type maysvillebaptist.net in your search engine. Also, you can support this ministry through our website or by mailing your gift to 8875 Highway 82 Spur Road, Maysville, Georgia. 30558. God bless you, and I hope you tune in next week where once again 
we turn our hearts towards the Word of God.